Well, thank you all for coming. Good to see you all. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've set aside uh, for our encouragement and enrichment as we receive uh, so many good things from you on this day. We pray, Lord, as we continue to study your word and understand the, the great drama of redemption that you have brought us into, that we would understand what it means to be your image bearers, what it means to uh, live in this world, in this present evil age, and how to faithfully give glory to you in our lives because of what Christ has done, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, uh, last week we briefly started discussing what it means to find ourselves in God's story and talked about why stories are so important and how stories often shape our lives and give us meaning and purpose and value. Um, things, things that are just, whether we watch things in the news or television or things like Harry Potter, like those things we gravitate towards because we kind of see our lives through those kind of stories. We even, even though they're untrue, those things in many ways um, orient what we think about the good life. They orient what we think about um, happiness and what gives meaning and purpose to our daily lives. And so this love of stories is merely human, uh, and we're all kind of wrapped up in that. We talked last week briefly about how the question isn't whether or not we're being discipled. The question isn't whether we're believing in certain stories. It's just which one. Um, which story is shaping us, which story is driving us, and changing our vision of what the good life looks like. And Scripture, in many ways, is what we have to constantly come back to uh, to reorient and reshape our vision of the good life that God has for us in Christ. That Scripture is constantly showing us and kind of peeling back all the different stories and myths that our world tells us, whether it's like we talked about last week, the myth of individualism, that we just, if we just follow our heart, that that is what will make us happy. That if we follow our dreams, that is what's going to give us meaning and purpose in our lives. Um, this whole idea that we can be the master of our own fate and the captain of our soul Sadly, those things don't give us meaning and purpose. Those things don't give us what we're looking for, but they end up just making us feel hollow and kind of empty at the end of the day. And God's Word, as we come to see what it is and what it's trying to say, actually makes much more sense of reality than we could ever realize. And so but part of the reason we're going through this drama of redemption is to see how the Scripture kind of fits together. And the, the big picture focus of what God is actually saying in His Word. So that when we see what God is doing in His Word, what He's doing in His church, what He's doing in our lives, we really get to understand how we fit in to God's story Himself. And, and how what He's doing to give us that identity and meaning. So we briefly just talked about how we're going to be going over these four D's over the next several months. Uh, this quarter, we'll be talking about the drama of redemption, but then also how to, out of that, 
comes the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, we'll be discussing like the Apostles' Creed. But all of these things, this great story is something that we constantly have to be enmeshed in and having our lives put into that story over and over again. And then how out of that doctrine comes doxology, which is a life of gratitude, praise, and prayer. And then out of that comes a different form of discipleship. And we'll be talking about the Ten Commandments and vocation and mission when we get there. Uh, but this is a constant thing that's kind of happened over and over again throughout our lives. It's not like, okay, now I got the drama down, I'm going to move on to the doctrine. No, it's like a constant thing that we constantly need. We're constantly being re-implotted into God's story and then understanding who He is from that. And our whole life is one of doxology and praise where we're giving our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in light of His mercies, which leads us to a very different you know, life of discipleship. Um, and so like, coming to understand this is how the Bible itself presents itself to us will help us become better readers of the Bible. It'll help us be better prayers. It'll help us be better disciples in this world when we really see how God's plan centers around what Christ has done. And it centers around how that was the plan from the very beginning of Genesis, as we already started seeing last week, that Christ brings us into the story as we are united to Him by faith, and we're then caught up in this great new drama that God has, His rescue mission into the world. Um, so if you remember from last week, we briefly just discussed what it means for God to create the world. Um, we said that God didn't create the world by accident. Everyone is created with meaning and purpose and value. We're not just you know, like this ooze and scum that's come out of the sea, crawling up and this violent kind of survival of the fittest where we're just you know, violently against the world and trying to survive. No, everyone... Every one of us has meaning and value and dignity. And God created the world in goodness and in peace. Uh, there wasn't this big cosmic struggle between a force of good and a force of evil. No, God was sovereign. And He was alone the creator of the world. And He went out and every time He created this new part of creation, He said it was very good. Um, so goodness and peace are the essence and essential to the very reality of this world. Violence is not the heart of reality. That's something that's coming because of sin and the fall, as we'll talk about. But peace and justice and goodness are all things that God created this world to show and to reflect. God created this world sovereignly to partake and share in the love that He had from eternity. That this whole world was made as a theater of His glory and His grace to picture back to the world, to picture back to everyone the glory that God had from eternity. So that was briefly what we just kind of like went over last week. And so this week we're talking about what it means to be created in God's image. How we are servant rulers under this great King the sovereign king and God that we find in Genesis. And then we'll also look at how he's placed us in this world, especially specifically the Garden of Eden.
Um, so this good, sovereign architect that we kind of talked about last week, he provides, as we said, the lumber for his own creation. He didn't have to like find something to create this world out of, but he just speaks it into existence, and it's there. And he starts creating and forming the world, and he makes man and woman in his image, as we read in Genesis 1. Um, now, many Christians in the past have thought that what it means to be made in God's image is merely just to have the, the capacity to have a free will, or just the capacity even to reason and have rational thoughts. Um, but that, that is only a part of what it means to be made in God's image. That doesn't exhaust it. Like, you're not going to cut open man and say, oh, I just I found where he is. Where that's, that's where he's the image of God. Uh, no, we are, in body and in soul, the image of God. Genesis 1 portrays uh, God as this sovereign king. So to be made in his image is to be made in the image of a king. It means that in some sense, we all are kings and queens who reflect back to God who he is. That we have this royal position in creation. And this is even hinted at when we read in Genesis 1.26 where it says, let us make man in our image and our, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God doesn't just create us, but He specifically has this purpose in mind of us having dominion over all the other things that God has created. And we're supposed to be these kind of servant kings and queens who are his rulers and his kind of his vice regents and rulers over this whole cosmos. The, the book of Psalms talks about that in this way. It says later on that, yet you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet. So this is part of what it means to be in the image of God. Um, I think a lot of times when we think about dominion, when we think about ruling, in our sin-twisted world, we just think of domination. We think anything that sounds like subjugation and rule is instantly evil. It's something that people are going to use to abuse others and take advantage of them. And all these power structures that are having dominion like over nature and creation. What do they do? It's just like they're just ripping up nature. They're ripping up all these things. They're subjecting men and women and children. So when we think about dominion, we often think of it in terms of just violence. Uh, but what, what is going on in this passage in the Scripture is actually something very different. God is giving dominion to reflect the same thing that God is Himself doing. Uh, that it's specifically bringing more peace and justice and goodness and kindness to the world. So He gives mankind as His image the specific role as servant rulers so that they can use their power to serve. 
so that they can use their power to help actually spread God's goodness and His glory all over the world. Um, So this is what it means to be in the image of God. To be human is specifically to have this role of reflecting back to God His goodness. Reflecting back to God, bringing peace and justice and love to the world. And so he, he sets up mankind as this ruler for that specific purpose and function. And everyone has, has that kind of dignity. This is one of the great uh, truths that Christianity has always talked about. We maybe haven't always lived this in the best way or expressed it, but Christians have always said that every human life has dignity, that every person is born in the image of God, as an image bearer, and so they have dignity and worth and value. And when we hurt each other and when we sin against each other, we're specifically sinning against someone who's made in the image of God. Um, One of Jesus' early disciples, James, he said it in this way, that when we gossip or slander, he says that with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we also curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So he specifically grounds uh, the fact that when we hurt each other, why it's so harmful is because we're made in the likeness of God. We're, We're actually hurting and making this sin against God himself. Um... This is one of the great things that comes from this passage is that everyone uniquely displays God's glory in some way. If we think about it, God who is infinite, He's infinitely glorious and powerful. He can't be displayed by just one person. He can't be just displayed in one facet of creation. No, He's actually uniquely displaying something about His glory in every single person. Everyone has a specific gift or trait or dignity that is unique to them that nobody else has. And so in that way, when we look at each other, we are in reality seeing the face of God. Like they are as much as part of who I am as the image of God as my own flesh. Um, one, One writer talked about it that when we look at everyone from any race any class, whatever it is, um, we should consider them to be our own flesh because we're all made in this image and likeness of God, displaying and reflecting to each other His love and perfection. Um, And I think this is really pertinent in our day because if, as we talked about earlier, if violence and survival of the fittest, if that was actually the heart of reality, and violence was the heart of reality, and it's a dog-eat-dog world, we wouldn't actually have any basis for human rights. We wouldn't have any basis for human value and actually any reason not to hurt each other. Uh, Because if it's all about survival of the fittest in a kind of naturalistic world, then anyone who's in my way to getting to the top has to be overturned. But... But God's Word shows us something very different. And so that's kind of like, in a nutshell, what it means to be made in the image of God. 
Um, so secondly, uh, God's garden. The world that he's displayed as his theater for his, his glory to be seen. Um, since we talked about how God is omnipotent, he was eternally satisfied in, his, in the love that, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had from eternity, it's clear he didn't create us or the world because he needed it. Um, the Apostle Paul has this really famous sermon where he's talking to all these pagan philosophers where he says that the God who made the world and everything in it, he's being Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by hand, nor is merely served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So why did God create a world that he didn't need? We talked about this briefly, but because of the overflow of his goodness and love that he wanted us to share in. God didn't need us, but he wanted us to share in that love that he's had from eternity. We often think of God up in heaven kind of like this Scrooge. You know, he's kind of like, he's up there, he's hoarding all his possessions and he's gathering it in. And we, we think that, you know, he's jealous in that kind of sense. But no, what we see in the Genesis passage is actually something very different, that he's just overflowing with so much goodness and love that he just is like wanting to create and he's just is creating things because he loves it and he delights in us. And he's just he's creating this massive theater for us to delight in and for him to delight in us and for us to make much of him. Um, He's not hoarding everything to himself, but he wants to spread it about and make us a part of that story. And so this this sovereign architect is also a a really amazing artist. Uh, His creation is meant to display the greatness of who he is. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You know, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And as we said before, it's not just like the world that is displaying his glory, but it's specifically people as kind of like the crown of his creation. When God spoke of bringing back his people in the Old Testament, he says that, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. And anyone who's called by my name for, for whom I created for my glory and whom I formed and made. So God made the earth and everything that is in it to display that love and his glory and beauty. And so he created us so we can enter into that love that he's had from eternity. And the Garden of Eden specifically was this special place that God created where that love and that glory was on display. He, this is where he, he made man in his own image. And he specifically commands uh, Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden and to multiply. The Garden of Eden in this passage isn't just this kind of like permanent resort where they're just going to be hanging out for eternity, but it's the place, like a garden, that was to grow. It was to grow and to cover the entire world where God's glory was going to spread from inch to inch all over the universe. And so God made man and woman specifically for this function 
to spread his glorious love all over creation. Uh, so we said earlier that God had given them dominion over the land and the earth and the sea. And that dominion, though, was specifically for the purpose of spreading about in service, in servanthood, God's peace and his justice and his glory over everything. They were supposed to cultivate it, not tear it apart, not rip it to shreds and use it for every ounce they could. But they were supposed to cultivate it in that kind of language. If you think of a gardener who's just like loving, taking care of a shrub or a bush, he's just doing everything he can to make it flourish and survive. And that's the kind of rule and dominion that they were supposed to have. Um, God made man and woman to be in this kind of garden temple that was this unique place where they were continually adding to it and growing it so that it would eventually cover the whole, the whole universe. Uh, just to quickly summarize the days of creation uh, from last week and this week, we see that there was six days of creation and then the last day was what they say was a Sabbath. I'm sure you guys have heard of the term sabbatical, where we get that from. Sabbatical means taking a period of, of rest. Um, and that's kind of very much the focus of this entire passage, is that we see two different things that are going on. We see God creating these kingdoms. And then he's also creating these kings and rulers in each kingdom. And so the first day we saw that God created light. And the second day, He creates the sky and the water. And day three, He creates the land and vegetation. And then after that, He not only creates kind of like the theater or the place where those things are going to happen, but then he fills it with people and things and creatures that are governing and ruling those things. So he had the sun and the moon to, to rule the day and the night. So he says that there's the luminaries or the lights. And then he creates the birds and the fish. And that's, so that's day four, five, and then lastly, the animals and mankind. And then on the last day, what, what did we happen? God looked over everything and He said that it was good. And He rested on that last day. So you have this movement. We talked about what it means to be man, specifically as in reflecting what God has done and spreading about His goodness. So God is going through and he's creating all these different kingdoms and he's creating all these different kings to fill and rule those lands and to govern it according to how he made it. And then finally, we see then this last day, God resting. So this is really a really interesting thing what's going on here. Um, it's kind of like, think of it like a procession or a dance. Like we talked about that briefly last week. But what's going on is you see God and he's like, 
He's like that little child who wants to play the game again and again and again and again and again and again. He's going about and he's creating all these different things and just because out of his delight and his love. And he creates, finally, he creates man after this whole procession. And then on the last day, it's like he sits down and he sees all these things dancing before him in procession. And, and he's saying, that is very good. And he sits down and he declares that as good. And that's like the Sabbath. That is him resting. And mankind was supposed to follow that exact pattern. Mankind was supposed to work six days and rest on a seventh. Um, I don't know about you, but if any of you have worked more than seven or eight days in a row, you know how painful that can be. How we're not physically even made for that. We start, you know, kind of, I don't know, losing sleep and kind of just not being able to function. After, after a while, coffee just doesn't do it anymore. Um, there's a reason for that. Because we are made specifically to have this pattern of work and rest. Have this pattern of work and fulfillment and like looking at what we do and say, dang, I did a good job. You know? <laughs> um, and all of that was for the specific purpose of reflecting and bringing God's glory all over the world, all over the universe. And man was supposed to cultivate all these different things, all these different places, and eventually himself, if you can see this, sorry, eventually himself enter into, enter into that rest. And there's a specific interesting thing that's going on is that it was reflecting what was already true in heaven. So you think about the Lord's Prayer. When we, when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, you know, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this whole universe of the earth, and then we'll say that's the Garden of Eden, right there. I'm a great artist. No. Um, so heaven above perfectly pictured God's glory. And God had given Adam this task of spreading the glory all over the world so that one day it would cover the face of the earth and all the sea. And it would literally bring heaven to earth. And it would bring the new heavens and new earth to us where there would be perfect righteousness and happiness and blessedness. And that would come down. And Adam was given that specific task. Adam was given that very thing to do. And that really speaks a lot to what it means to be human. Um, I don't know how many societies try to have a utopia, try to have perfect peace and justice in this world. We're just like driven to that. It's insatiable. And we think we can do that. We think we can go through, get all our ducks in a row, and we can bring people to the Sabbath rest, shalom, peace with the world and with each other and creation. That's because that's just like very much just built into what it means to be human. Um, and that's what we oftentimes try to do. We oftentimes have this kind of goal that we're driven by, have this kind of vision that if we only do X, Y, and Z, our life will be heaven. Um, but all those things became disrupted, as we'll see, by sin. 
That doesn't mean those, things have, those desires have been taken away from us. It just means that things are broken and things are not going to work the way that we want them to work. Let's see. So God made us to know and reflect Him in the world. And, you know, when we fail to do this, uh, God doesn't just abandon us. He doesn't just be like, oh, well, sorry, you guys screwed up and just have at it. Do what you can do. No, He immediately, on the heels of sin and death, He said He's going to send His Son to fix the broken image in us that we constantly are taking mud and kind of like putting all over us thinking we're doing a good job. And He's washing that clean and He's restoring us in His image. That's why Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, can say to one of the churches, he says, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or powers, that all things were created for him and through him. So that's the really amazing thing, is that God so delights in this world that he created that after sin entered, he said, I'm going to enter it. He's the, the artist is entering into the canvas. And he's becoming a part of this great drama. He's entering into the canvas of creation so that he could paint over our sins and remove them. Um, so that in Jesus, we can actually get back on track with this because he's actually fulfilled that. That humanity then once again perfectly reflect what it means to me, the image of God. So, briefly to sum up what we've talked about so far, I think we have a little time. Um, so, according to the Bible, we see that God is this sovereign architect who's making this amazing house. He's making this Garden of Eden house, and his creation has a place to dwell, and he's giving it all these things that we don't even need. Like how many colors of green does God really need to create? I mean, every single tree has probably 20 different colors of green on it, on each leaf. Like God didn't need to do that. It seems over extravagant. It seems like why, like what, what's, the, what's the possible use of that? Or like a platypus. Like really, what's the possible use of a platypus in the chain of creation? It's like, no, I just love it. I delight in it because it's a unique thing that displays my glory. And the world wasn't created for monsters. The world wasn't created for this violent cesspool. But it was this place that was supposed to show his goodness and his mercy and love. He saw everything that he had made and he said, behold, it's very good. And so, secondly, also we see that everyone is made in the image of God. Even after the fall, we all have that dignity. We all have that specific purpose in life to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were made, and we can never get rid of that. Everyone has that. Also, creation itself is what we say is, oh, I just erased it, it's doxological or doxology. We have that word that it's meant to display God's glory and give praise to Him. That's what gives us meaning. 
when we are rightly using this world and our jobs and our vocations and everything to display that glory. And then also, lastly, we saw that the Garden of Eden was this place from which all of God's glory was to spread all over the earth. And Adam was, had this task to bring that healthy garden, that lush garden, and to cultivate it, and to cultivate all the creatures and animals in this whole world to bring that glory and that justice and that goodness and kindness everywhere. And that's what we see that they were called to do. Um, let's see here. So very briefly, we'll start in the next section. If you have your Bibles, you could tr- turn to Genesis 2. So now we kind of get to like, that's the, the background, the, the backstory, the backdrop of like how amazing this would have sounded to the ancient world. Like that this was actually what was happening with God. Instead of like this crazy story of... That's fine. That's it's good. Uh, this crazy story of a warrior god versus this dragon god of chaos where, the, where, the, where those the, that cosmic battle, that primal battle, was what started the universe. We see how different that is from the book of Genesis. Um, so if you turn to Genesis 2, we can read uh, verses 1 through 9. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and all that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from the work of creation that he had done. And these are the generations of the heavens of earth and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted, at the, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And skipping down to verse 15, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now we come to this kind of command. We set the stage. And, you know, this story kind of sounds, just off the surface of it, kind of strange that God would put all these things in there and then He puts this one tree that He denies to mankind. But oftentimes we don't look at this passage very much in context of what just happened. Um, it can seem very strange when we don't understand this lavish garden and this lavish world that God had given mankind. So this prohibition to not eat this tree 
is specifically given in the context of him giving us more than we ever could actually use or need. Adam was God's right-hand man. And then out of that, out of all the creatures, God made man in his image and he appointed him as like the second in command. But he gave Adam the specific prohibitions as well as these commands. So God commanded Adam, as we read last week in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what is often called the creation mandate. These are the set of jobs and the tasks that we were talking about earlier that God gave to Adam. But in addition to this, in addition to this positive command, God gave Adam that one negative rule about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says, you shall, not, you shall not eat of it. And even that, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Wow. Just for eating a piece of fruit, I'm going to die. That's kind of like a very interesting like command, God. Why would you even think that that's reasonable to, to require that of us? Um, well, what God had required of Adam was very simple and clear, and he understood it to the best degree. He was oversee and to expand and cultivate God's creation so that eventually heaven or earth would just be like heaven. But in order to make sure that Adam didn't lose sight of this one thing, God places this one single reminder in the Garden of Eden. It's called the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. This tree was an ever-present reminder of who was in charge. Um, it was a reminder that God is the sovereign creator king who knows what is good for us and he knows what it actually means to be human. And he, so he sets that as this sign to show him the very source of all blessing is only God. Um, that everything in the world only has meaning when it's connected to Him. So, one way to think about it is we have all these good gifts that God gives to us that we are to use as humans and the kind of... And we're supposed to spread that about around the whole world to everyone around us. And what God is ultimately saying is that if you lose sight of this connection, if you lose sight of the fact that I'm the one who created these things and that without me, the very bread that we eat will turn to dust in our mouth. Without me, these things can't do us any good. And he set, so he sets this, this tree in the middle of the garden to remind us that all of his good gifts are only good when we, when we recognize they're from his hand. And when we start breaking that down, these things become death. These things become things that are actually curses to us when we concentrate on those gifts as if they're going to, be, they're going to bring heaven to earth, whether it's our jobs or our families or whatever it is, those things that we kind of we tend to make idols out of, 
when they're disconnected from who God is and the, His hand, that's how even those good things can become curses to us. And so that was a sign that Adam was given with this tree of knowledge of good and evil, showing that God can't be disconnected from those very good gifts that He's giving to us. Um, so these things, these commands are not arbitrary. They're not God saying, you know, I have the better superpower, like I have the better guns, so you better listen to me. No, it's because He's saying to them, I know what is good for you, and I'm giving you these signs and all these different things to show you what true human flourishing and meaning and purpose and fulfillment look like. And this, uh, to make one final point before we kind of close, this kind of points to one really important reality that I think uh, we often miss. It's the fact that, you know, in some sense, self-denial Self-denial is, is at the, actually the heart of what it means to be human. Um, we're constantly having to remind ourselves every day that I'm not in control. I have to like restrain myself from going after every little thing that I want because I know it won't actually lead to my good. And God is actually saying throughout this whole thing, I am your good Father who knows what is good for you. Um, just because our kids, you know, really, really want that chocolate cake and they want to have that before dinner and they don't want to eat what's good for them, we don't give that to them. No, of course not. We, you know, we say, no, you have to have your good food that's going to nourish you and you have to deny yourself. And that's very much what a part of what it means to be human growing up is like learning that self-denial because we see something greater on the horizon, some greater purpose and meaning on the horizon. And God is pointing all those things out and saying, just listen to me. I have this eternal peace. I have heaven coming down to you if you obey me, if you follow my commandments. Uh, this peace and goodness will cover the whole world. And he wants to share with that with us. And that Adam was supposed to have that in his mind and he recognized all those things. But as we'll see... Uh, next week, he, he thought that he could have these good gifts apart from God. He wanted to have a feast without God. He's like, I'm going to have my own party and there's nothing to do about it. I'm just going to go. And we're just going to get all, you know, we're just going to get smashed and hammered and whatever. And we're just going to go whatever. And God, you can, you can go out and die. Like, that's actually what he's saying in the next section, as we'll see. He's basically saying, God, we don't need you. We have all these things. We're doing fine on our, on our own. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents. Um, so next week, we'll talk more about the relationship that God had with man. It's called a covenant. And we'll kind of unpack that a little from this passage and specifically look at why Adam and Eve's sin was such cosmic treason. And God had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth for what they did, but he does the opposite. He just surprises them again. And he's like, I know you did this, but look, I know you would want you, this is what you deserve, but I'm going to give you something that you couldn't imagine. Um, 
So, any, I know that was a lot, that was intense, uh, but any questions or comments, rebukes or rebuttals, any thoughts? Yes. Good question. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question was, since Adam's job was to bring heaven to earth, is that our task now, or is that Christ's work? Um, and yeah, so we will talk about that a little bit next week, but because Adam sinned and failed, he, his guilt and his corruption is what is actually given to the world. It's what's given to his descendants and posterity. So if, if you look at the book, we just talked about the book of John. Uh, we're going through the book of John as a sermon series, and the whole beginning part is all about how you know, God's so loving the world that he has to send his son and he has to send, something has to come from outside this world. So this whole thing becomes under the dominion of sin and death. And something from outside of it has to come in to rescue us. And so that's like the whole emphasis of what the Gospels are about. Is God sending his son into this world that he so loved to bring us back to heaven. And so like, that's why you see at the end of the Bible that heaven is actually coming out of the skies with Christ's return and he's establishing his kingdom on earth is this very thing. So Christ is the second Adam, as we'll talk about, who fulfills this pattern, who fulfills what Adam failed to do, what every one of us failed to do, and he's going to be the one who succeeds. And that's what, why it's so significant when Jesus on the cross says, is it, is, it is finished. He's saying that this whole thing is done. I've done it all. And now, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but now, no, no, it's okay. Now we don't have a work pattern of one in six days and resting on the seventh. But we actually begin the week on the Lord's Day because Christ has already ushered us into that new heavens and new earth. So we begin the week on the Lord's Day because the new creation has already begun. And we begin resting. We begin resting in His finished work having all these things given back to us? Um, good question. Well, uh, I'll close with a word of prayer and I guess we will be finished for this week. Heavenly Father, we are so overcome with your lavish goodness and kindness to us that you gave us so many wonderful things that we even have now, even though the world is fallen and broken and distorted and We've made such a mess of things. But Lord, we see that even from the beginning of the world and in, this, in these beginning passages of Scripture, that you had this rescue mission launched. And you entered into this world and you entered into your creation because of how much you loved us. So we thank you, Lord, for this day of rest and gladness that we can now go and participate in heaven as we worship you on this day, that we can actually commune with you as we were meant to and glorify your name. We pray that would encourage us and strengthen us for this week. In your name we pray. Amen.